Please note, the following podcast is an update of a previous version. A big thank you goes out to the member of the public who was able to give us more information on the author and date related to this object. Apart from vaccines which were being developed and preventive interventions described in the book, there were no other treatments available for these diseases. This is 100 Years, 100 Objects, stories from the collections of Lancaster City Museums. I'm Rachel Roberts, the Collections Registrar for Lancaster City Museums, and today we'll be looking at the stories behind another object from our collections as we celebrate 100 years of our museums. Although a simple, everyday notebook, today's object can help us understand the evolution of science and nature, and take us from the classroom of one Edwardian teenager to a spacefaring future. Today's object is a book used to take notes in a nursing class. The book itself is quite a basic notebook, with a green cardboard cover and inner pages which have a grid pattern printed on them. It's a similar size to an exercise book that a schoolchild might use today, somewhere between A5 and A4 when closed. On the front is printed Story Institute, Lancaster, and so it appears to be the sort of book that would have been given to anyone studying at the Institute at the time. On the top right corner, the owner has written Mary Ellen Lund, 20 Brunton Road, Greaves, age 17, 1885. A previous address in Eastern Road has been crossed out. This inscription is something of a mystery. 1885 cannot be the year that the book was used, as the Story Institute was built in 1887. Taking the name and address given, it appears that it was used by Mary Ellen Lund who was born in Lancaster in 1885. We don't know why Mary would put her birth date on the front of her school book, but this appears to be what she has done. As she quotes her age as 17, this book would have been used by her around 1902. In 1911, there's still a Mary Ellen Lund living at the Brunton Road address, listed as a cotton weaver. However, a 1939 register shows a Mary E. Lund, who was born in 1885, as a registered nurse at a different address, so it appears that she was able to put her training to use later in her life. Back when she was at the Story Institute, Mary covered the inside pages of this notebook with lines of neat notes, all relating to nursing. The first line reads, Be most careful when your patient is allowed solid food and water lest he get anything not permitted. On the inside cover has been scribbled a quick conversion. Four tablespoons equals one wine glass. We spoke to Dr Alejandra Zarata-Portez, Senior Research Associate in Biomedical and Life Sciences at Lancaster University, to find out a little bit more about the information contained within this book and how it fits into the wider scientific and medical knowledge of the time. So this is a notebook. It belongs to Mary Ellen Lund, who is a nursing student at the Story Institute. And inside of it, it has notes on nursing practices. It includes lists of antiseptics and disinfectants. It speaks about how to handle poisonings, how to dress wounds, how to treat diseases such as influenza, consumption and pneumonia. And it mentions the risks of infection and poisoning associated to bites of animals as well. The notebook shows that Mary Ellen Lund was learning about microbes. They are called germs in her book. 
it says that they lead to disease and they're responsible for infection. And this actually refers to discoveries that are recent at the time made by Louis Pasteur in France and by Robert Koch in Germany. She shows instructions of how to use antiseptics and disinfectants. I would like to quote from the book because I thought it was like, it made me smile to read this. It says, antiseptics are used to prevent germs from getting into wounds and also to destroy those which give rise to fermentation and decomposition. And she says these include carbolic acid, boracic acid, iodoform, sulfuric acid, and corrosive sublimate. She also says disinfectants are substances which destroy germs on parts already foul and infected. And they are for the most part the same as antiseptics, but used much stronger. This is uh, very accurate and also reflects all these research that is going on at the time. She emphasizes on the importance of destroying contaminated materials, including the floor sweepings, in case of patients with infectious disease. And all of these must be destroyed by burning. So it is known that burning is the most effective way of getting rid of all these microbes that cause disease. Also, the importance of properly dealing with feces, so fecal material. She says that they have to be disinfected or neutralized by using dry earth, slagged lime, which is calcium hydroxide that is still used today to prevent disease in livestock and uh, chloride of lime, which is calcium hypochlorite uh, or bleaching powder, is also used today. This book was written in this period where biological sciences had a great expansion. After 1850, Louis Pasteur develops the rabies vaccine, and Robert Koch is identifying several bacteria that are responsible for known diseases. For example, he discovers mycobacterium tuberculosis in 1882, and Vibrio cholera in 1884, and these are the bacteria responsible for tuberculosis or consumption and for cholera, which she mentions in her book. So in 1902, Mary Lund was already learning microbial science and medical practices which we still rely on today. We asked Alejandra to help us put this into context and tell us a bit about when people discovered that germs or microbes were responsible for causing illness. That is quite fascinating because it's something that, of course, we cannot see, right? After 1850, is known as the golden era of microbiology. Many discoveries were being made at the time. But of course, what gave rise to all of this was something that happened way before, in the late 1600s, with Anthony van Leeuwenhoek, who made his own microscope and started observing different samples, environmental samples, samples from his teeth. And he realized that he could see this minuscule microscopic living organisms that he called animacules and there were loads of them everywhere. He was an amateur biologist, that's how he's described, and he sent his findings to the Royal Society of London over a period of 50 years, from 1674 to 1723. And after that, the whole discussion, the scientific field, focused on where do these organisms come from? Because they are more abundant in, for example, fouling nutrient media like in meat or in broth when it's left standing, it gets these animacules. So where do they come from? And many scientists believe these may come by spontaneous generation. So meat that is left there will get maggots and the maggots would come from the meat itself. To test this, scientists developed a series of experiments. This was also the birth of experimental biology, which is the procedure by which you test a hypothesis by controlling the environment, controlling all parameters, and you change only one factor at the time. And this is the only way really that you can establish cause and effect. They said if the, the animacules would come from the material itself, then they will emerge even if this material is not in touch with anything else. So never touch the air. They put them in a vacuum and then they saw when they're in a vacuum and they have never touched air or anything else, then nothing develops. So 
this was more or less how they showed that they don't come through spontaneous generation. They have to come from somewhere. And they actually established that they come from the dust in the air. And how did this knowledge develop during the later 19th and early 20th centuries, when Mary Ellen Lund was growing up and studying at the Story Institute? The golden era is this time of Louis Pasteur. He is the father of clinical microbiology. He was the one who discovered the principles of vaccination, although the first vaccination had been done before in 1796 by Edward Jenner. He realized that when you inoculate a patient with cowpox, then the patient would be resistant to infection by smallpox, which was a very common and very dangerous disease. But Louis Pasteur discovered that a weakened version of the disease would grant resistance to the patient if it's inoculated before acquiring the the disease. So this is something Louis Pasteur discovered. He also described microbial fermentation, which is a, a, a different kind of metabolism done by microbes. And this is how, from beginnings of time, we have beer and bread. But he actually discovered the process, how this happens. He came about with the process of pasteurization, which is a way of making food clean of these germs and then it stops it from going foul, especially for milk. This is very important. And he was the first one to discover vaccines for rabies and anthrax, the first proponent of germ theory and using this word germ that is on the book that Marielle Lund is writing. Uh, So there you can really see all of these concepts that Louis Pasteur is coming up with and this is discoveries. They are going straight into Marielle's book. At the same time, we have Robert Koch, and he focused on finding the causing agents of disease. Now that we know they don't come about by spontaneous generation, he he dealt the final blow to this idea by showing that disease actually comes from specific germs, specific species of germs. The patient needs to be inoculated with this germ to develop the disease. When it is inoculated to another patient, then the disease will come about again. So he really showed that germs are the causing agents of disease. He discovered the causing agents of many diseases that were very problematic at the time. Apart from vaccines, which were being developed, and preventive interventions, which are the ones described in the book, there were no other treatments available for these diseases. But later on, medication came about first in 1909 with Paul Ehrlich, who found out that you could treat syphilis with arsenic. And uh, then Alexander Fleming in 1929 discovered the wonder dog penicillin, which is the first antibiotic. That is the first time that we can actually treat an advanced infection and then turn the situation around for the patient and have them survive. So how has our thinking changed from then until now? What we have in the book is actually quite amazing because those were discoveries that actually founded the fields of microbiology and clinical microbiology today. And it's, of course, still very important, all these ideas about cleaning and antiseptics. But of course, at the time this notebook was written, microbes and germs were considered etiological agents. So they are going to cause disease. They are bad guys and they need to be eliminated. That's why they describe all these antiseptic methods. But now we have a quite different view and it has to do with discoveries that were made later. This boom in microbiology also allowed the birth of other different fields, including molecular biology. So these bacteria that were described in this time were perfect tools to discover new things about general biology, for example, solving the DNA structure. So DNA is the main molecule that carries 
genetic instructions of biological function. And it's the same for bacteria as for humans and other more complex organisms. This was described by Watson and Crick in 1953. And then there was another discovery, which was genetic code in 1964 by Nuremberg, Holly and Corana. Uh, this is how the sequence of the nucleotides in DNA carries the information to produce proteins, which are the main molecular machines that carry out work in biological systems. And then came the sequencing era with Frederick Sanger, who developed the sequencing uh, method in 1977. So now we could isolate a molecule of DNA and know its sequence. And you can do this with any kind of living organism, not only human samples, but bacterial samples and environmental samples. Something that also happened at the time is that Carl Woos discovered that there are some genes that are very important. In this case, the 16S ribosomal RNA molecule is very important for the cellular functioning. It doesn't change much through time because it is very important. It needs to be kept the same. But it does change when you have a new species, then it can shift a little bit. And he realized for bacteria, this gene is a very good indicator of different species of bacteria. This is how he discovered archaea, which are very similar to bacteria, but are a completely different group of organisms. So we have one gene that is the marker that you can use to study the diversity of these microbes. And you have the sequencing technology. And actually in the year 2000, this was done by companies, Lynx Therapeutics, and this was later bought by Illumina. They designed massively parallel sequencing. So now you could, from one environmental sample, try to sequence any molecule of DNA that's in it and look for microbes by looking at that specific gene called 16S. They discover that actually there are microbes everywhere, in every single surface on Earth, every single environment, including on our skin, including inside our guts. We're covered in microorganisms. All these microorganisms that are associated to us, they were called the microbiota. And we found that they are integral to our physiology. They help us digest our food. They carry out basic functions at ecosystem level in all kinds of biological processes. So they are actually very important for supporting life. This is an area that Alejandra is now working in. She told us a little bit more about the work she is doing now. I study the function of genes that are part of the immune system. So the immune system is the system in our own bodies that naturally fights infection. And I'm interested in knowing how the immune system can distinguish between the harmful bacteria from the beneficial bacteria. Our bodies contain roughly the same number of human cells as they do of bacterial cells. The human gut harbors around 39 trillion bacterial cells. And they are integral to the health and functioning of the gut. They provide nutrients. They synthesize vitamin K. They aid in the digestion of complex molecules like cellulose. And they train the immune system of the gut to let them live there, but fight against pathogens. And they also communicate with the nervous system through chemical signals. So bacteria can actually chemically communicate with our brain. Today, we're trying to understand all these mechanisms through which beneficial bacteria support health. And then we, we want to integrate this knowledge in the way in which we treat disease and that we promote healthy aging. So try to use the microbes in our favor, maybe by introducing more of the good ones or trying to eat the foods that the good ones like so that they would be more abundant and they will promote our health. To finish, Alejandra told us how she thinks this research could help us in the future. In my current work, I'm using specifically one nematode, and I use it to discover genes that have an immune function. So we still need to find out 
what the function of all these genes are that we have now. We have sequenced, we have described, but we don't know what their exact function is. So what I do is identify some of these genes and I test them to see if they defend against pathogens, but also if they have a role in mediating this interaction with the beneficial bacteria. Whatever I find in my nematode, it could be translated into humans because 83% of the proteins are similar between the two organisms. So the function could also be similar. It gives us some evidence that still needs to be explored further in humans. We are again living, I think, through exciting and paradigm shifting times like uh, in the time of Mary Ellen Lund. So now we have methods like the massively parallel sequencing, other new technologies that allow us to gather large amounts of data about biological systems, including infected and healthy hosts. Also the bacteria, the pathogens, and the beneficial microbes. As data analysis and integration tools, including artificial intelligence, advance and they become more broadly available, fit for purpose, then we will be better able to identify those regulatory networks and then maybe design interventions that will help us exploit the host microbe interactions to promote health and to treat disease that will help us live healthier and longer, I think, in future. Understanding this better will help us maybe make some tweaks to our lives like in diet or design new medications that will target more the microbes inside of us rather than us ourselves. It will greatly benefit or have an impact in the future of promoting human health, but also like animal and crop health, as well as the welfare of the environment. Environments are also maintained by microbial activity. So it will definitely help us promote welfare in the environment and give us the ability to adapt to climate change in the future. And also, as we speak of going outside of Earth and colonizing new environments, who knows, this might be science fiction or might be really in our future. Knowing better how host microinteractions work will help us create these environments outside of Earth in order to sustain life. Thank you so much for examining this episode of 100 Years, 100 Objects. We hope you will enjoy some of our other episodes where we look at everything from portraits to printing machines. 